0: Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation.
1: So today on our podcast, we've got um, Dr. Chris Willoughby. And Chris is a historian of slavery and medicine in the United States and a visiting assistant professor of the history of medicine and health at Pitzer College in Claremont, California. He's the author of the book, Masters of Health, Racial Science and Slavery in U.S. Medical Schools, which will be published this November by the University of North Carolina Press. And with Sean Murray Smith, he edited the book Medicine and Healing in the Age of Slavery. He's also written several popular articles for The Washington Post, AL.com and Black Perspectives. So uh, welcome to the podcast um, and thanks so much for being here and congratulations on your book. It's absolutely phenomenal. So. Just to sort of start from the basics, what inspired you to write a book that's focusing so much on the deep connections between racial science, slavery, and medical school specifically? First,
2: thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's great to be here. Um, So this really goes back to an early research project in the beginning of undergrad, or end of undergraduate, beginning of graduate school, where I was very interested in the secession movement pro-slavery arguments and the the kind of logic of them to the extent there was one. So I went to these racial science books, the most famous being Samuel George Morton, uh, um, his Crania Americana and Crania Egyptica, and then uh, Josiah Knott and George Glidden's Types of Mankind and Indigenous Races of the Earth. And what kind of the, I was reading all these books on the coming of the Civil War the fracture of politics over slavery. And th- these people would be cited as kind of kooks, uh, um, using what we would think of today as pseudoscience to justify slavery. But what wasn't being addressed, and I was looking at the title pages of these books, was that they were almost everybody had an MD. Uh, many of them were professors at the leading medical schools in the United States, uh, particularly. Um, smaller contributors, but Josiah Nott, for example, taught at Tulane University, or what's now Tulane University. He helped found the Medical College of Alabama, which is UAB. He trained at the University of Pennsylvania, the first medical school. And so, I wanted to understand why um, or or how this this kind of phenomena came to be, where physicians were the leading commenters on racial science, and whether or not the second question was did they teach it in medical school so then in graduate school once i started looking at this as a dissertation i found medical student dissertations defending uh, theories of racial difference and ones that really had ostensibly very little to do with medicine but were these pro-slavery or been depicted as pro-slavery theories they would quote their professors they would quote these kind of popular racial science books or what were framed as popular racial science books by most historians. And it led me to think there was a deeper story um, about the medical school, about the dissemination of racial theories to a very different audience than pro-slavery readers, um, which would, you know, in the 1850s a relatively small set of people who could afford these books. So it wasn't necessarily mass distributed other than occasional short snippets in newspapers and thing and popular journals. Um, so that's where I started looking. And then I systematically went through medical student dissertations at the university of Pennsylvania, the medical college of South Carolina. And I found both these overt defenses of racial science, but also mentions of race impacting how one should treat, uh, people of African descent primarily, um, and I get into a little bit in the introduction why there's not more racial science in medical schools on Native Americans, because a lot of racial science was interested in Native Americans, but it had, there was no money essentially in practicing on Native Americans if you're a physician at that time. So that's really how I kind of got this ball rolling and started to see the medical school as not just a disseminator, but also the trainer of most racial scientists in that period.
1: Can you expand for us about what racial science is um and the different thought processes that were used to justify the hierarchy polygenesis versus monogenesis and that type of thing
2: so in kind of western judeo-christian thought for much of the history uh um, dating back to you know uh, early christianity the general Uh, and obviously early Judaism, idea was that all humans derive from Adam and Eve. This is the base theory of monogenesis, a shared human origin of all people. Um, And in the 16th century, and I, you know, this is a very brief part of the book. Uh, There are more people who are much more expert on this. Um, Upon the kind of discovery or conquest of the Americas, naturalist, natural uh, philosophers in Europe begin to ask, how can everybody be created at once? And there be these millions of people that we never knew existed. They, you know, look different from us. I mean, that's what the Europeans thought. Um, they, uh, and so it brings up this controversy of polygenesis. And fairly quickly, the Catholic Church mostly sides with Bartholomew de las Casas, the a famous advocate against Indian slavery, although he did not oppose enslavement of Africans. Uh, it's worth noting. Um, but so that's the early kind of enunciation or questions about about racial difference. But in the 18th century, you have this kind of a classificatory obsession, starting with Carolus Linnaeus's system of nature. And he, in his book, groups different races distinctly. He is not a polygenesis but he starts classifying them just like kind of other varieties of a species. Um, And polygenesis has some growth and popularity in the 18th century. Voltaire was a kind of famous polygenist and polygenesis being the theory of multiple creations um, in different parts of the world. So in this, um, you know, Black people uh, were created in Africa for the environment of Africa, for the diseases of Africa. That's how it starts to begin taking on a medical valence as well. Native Americans for, Native, uh, for the Americas, um, Europeans for temperate climates, um, particularly Northern Europe. Um, and that theory grows in some popularity in the 18th century and early 19th century. Then it has a kind of 20-year moment right before Darwin where it's the dominant theory of racial difference. And what I what I argue in the book is one of the ways where we've misunderstood polygenesis's influence is that it also influences how monogenists talk about race. It doesn't mean that monogenists embraced a distinct origin theory, but they have a very robust argument or they have to deal with a very robust, I mean, we know now, factually suspect, but um, argument that Black people were anatomically distinct, as were to some extent Native Americans, um, and how they defend this, monogenist will defend not on the general premise that race is not a medical idea and it has no kind of biological meaning, which is really the best defense, but they'll say, well these differences, they're real, but in perhaps in a, you know, the the most progressive of monogenists in a generation or two um, could be erased. With education, they could be erased. But then you also have monogenists, particularly in the Americas or in the US, I should say not, um, that argue that these racial differences can only be erased over thousands of years, either in segregation or an enslavement. So they ultimately come to share a, a similar set of ideas about racial difference. The, the key bit of evidence being that, um, or you know, supposed evidence uh, being that people of African descent and native Americans as well, but that's kind of a spectrum of difference have the smallest cranial capacity. And thus this theoretically correlates to brain size, which correlates to intelligence and a lot of monogenists will end up giving ground on this point, um, but say that it's you know similar processes to like domestication cause this. Thus, other kind of civilization giving processes um, and education could counteract this. So it ends up being that they, that what the key shift is both both groups end up accepting the notion that scientists and physicians are key to defining racial differences, key to defining how they could potentially be erased. And I think that's perhaps the most, most important legacy uh, of, of this period in that book, is that r- race as an idea becomes broadly accepted as ha- having a, a medical meaning um, the, in this period before before most of the major medical discoveries of the late 19th century occur, before they they know what we, the reason why we go to Western physicians, um, it's not to get bled um, or, uh, purgatives, um, for the most part. I any mean, so that would be the kind of key shift. Um,
3: so thank you, uh, Chris for expounding. So obviously polygen, uh, polygenetics and, and monogenetics, if you will, um, doesn't just simply have, uh, a biological or medical influence but also a theological influence but we're not going to go into the theological dynamics um for those our listeners uh no i am an ordained clergy as well as a professor um in this field of uh racial medicine uh, but i i am interested in your thoughts on i guess the nuances between uh the treatment ex- exploitation of uh black people whether they were Black and enslaved, or whether they were free or enslaved. Uh, do you think there were distinctions, or you think just because you have that, you know, melanin in your skin, that hue, you fall under the whole generic ideologies of uh, of race, and their understandings of race at that particular time?
2: This is a, a kind of a yes and no answer. Um, so there were distinctions, <laughs> um, but there were also a lot of similarities. So we can start first with one of the biggest conundrums for medical education in the U.S. in the 19th century was where to get dissection material, i.e. human cadavers. Mm -hmm. Um, And this, so in the South, that question was fairly easily answered with enslaved people. It's not to say that they didn't steal other people's bodies, but the vast majority would have come from enslaved, uh, from enslaved people. Um, And then, so in the North, they're still preying upon the most socially disenfranchised and socially weak people. Um, But that would be a more multiracial cohort uh, of people. But So how they procured bodies in the North was stealing from the potter's field, the, the public graveyards. And they actually had secret agreements, at least in Philadelphia and New York with the city government that enabled them to more easily and without repercussions of kind of social crowd action and riots, which did occur sometimes um, in response to sealing bodies. So in that sense, in a place like Philadelphia, we don't know exact numbers, but we can look at racial uh, distribution in places like poor houses, which have um, pretty good records. And it's very likely that black people were disproportionately used beyond their population in every major Northern city, because as a racially discriminated group, they're gonna be disproportionately impoverished. Um, And and they might, in many cases, would be one generation out of slavery, two generations out of slavery. So everything was stacked against them and made them more likely to end up in the public graveyard. Um, And then there are some cases where there are just very significant distinction. And so, and this has to do also with legal history. An enslaved person cannot testify in court. They can't bring a lawsuit. They they have very few legal means of repercussion. So there were a series of medical experiments that I found by students at the Medical University of South Carolina on enslaved people that I never found a similar uh, similar cases at the University of Pennsylvania, um, where they did in one case a student um, injected an enslaved person with measles-infected blood. Um, in another case, they um, uh, the student uh, um, induced nicotine toxicity on an enslaved woman and forced her to breastfeed an infant. We don't actually know if it were, was her child. Um, and to the point to where the child nearly died, uh, the student said they were afraid that the child would perish. Uh, I think that's a pretty close to the quote. And so, There was slavery allowed for a certain type of extreme medical violence and experimentation that would not have been possible on free people because they had some legal rights. We can see in counterexamples with free whites in the North and in Europe where they absconded. And the only way to go back to being experimented on, this is in the case of William Beaumont, he had to transport this person's whole family from Canada. He had to pay him money. There's no sort of positive coercion, we'll say, or um, it's all stick, uh, no no carrot. Um, and whereas another case where physicians deliberately infected uh, hospital patients in Paris with syphilis, the government did an inquiry. There was a major investigation. It was a it was a real um, big dust up uh, over it, and bringing in legal authorities, they actually changed the rules governing how um, physicians could use uh, or or the types of experiments they could do on hospital patients. And that just doesn't happen with enslaved patients. And even these things were different from what J. Marion Sims did to enslaved women in that they had no immediate therapeutic purpose, the experiments that I found. They're purely harming patients to see how disease is transmitted or how nicotine, um, how how nicotine is transmitted in one's body. So they're purely kind of physiological experiments versus, versus. I don't buy J. Marion Sims' argument or pe- people who defend him, but you can make the case that he's trying to also cure a legitimate surgical ailment. Um, so that's one of those kind of key differences is that enslaved people both in their color and prejudice, are it's more morally acceptable to do these types of experiments on them. It's more morally acceptable to steal their bodies but they also have far fewer social and legal avenues to challenge the medical profession than even a poor white person would.
3: Yeah, absolutely, because well, they, they were viewed as property were no rights uh, whatsoever. Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, and for those uh, listeners who aren't familiar with uh, Dr. J. Marion Sims, accredited as one of the founders of gynecology, um, and um, and as uh, Chris expounded uh, just a little bit on uh, a little bit of the history of of him and how he dealt with particularly female slaves, which, of course, is egregious in, in every particular shape yeah. way or form. Um, but also, I'm curious because you talked about uh, body snatching. And I know that, uh, of course, that is part of uh, the medical history, medical racial history as well. Um I'm curious, in your book, did you talk about uh, the night watchers, the actual folks that tried to guard uh, these uh, body snatchers from stealing uh, these corpses?
2: A little bit. I mean, I don't use that term, but I discuss uh, when I, I, a couple of years ago, I was a fellow at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City and got really interested in the archaeological reports from the African burial ground. Um, and for those who don't know, the African burial ground was an 18th century um burial ground um, for enslaved Africans uh, and self kind of self operated. And in the 1990s, the federal government tried to build a building on top of it and found all these bodies. Um, And they've been working on reburying those but they also did these archeological reports that tell us a lot about body snatching actually and particularly resistance to it that you can't usually find in normal historical sources. So what, what, I, what they found was two bodies that had clearly had post-mortem dissections um, and they, uh, these post-mortem dissections, but they had been reinterred. So what that implies is not that, I've never seen any evidence of medical school stealing than giving back bodies, because they would not, no one would thank them for that, so that's just welcoming conflict. So what it implies is there was some sort of direct conflict um, between people of African descent finding their bodies stolen and challenging the medical school. And we also can see parallel history in New York at the same time. There were editorials in the local newspaper um, complaining in the 1780s by a a free African-American man uh, about body snatching from the African burial ground. And he actually threatened violence against the medical school. This this anonymous op ed author, and just a few years later, there was actually major anatomy riots in New York. But those were primarily done by uh, poor white people. Um, so, I do there is some of the, I do cover some of that resistance, but it's it's something that you have to find in the margins of the sources mostly. Um,
3: yeah, yeah, and we're talking about. Uh... The margins of uh, yeah. our podcast uh, name and looking into the margins of uh, this really, really important topic that um, needs to be talked about more. I know it's an uncomfortable topic. It's a it's a topic that uh, is not popular and we like to, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, you know, sweeping under, you know, sweeping in the dirt, um, literally. Um, but also we're talking about that um, factually and historically with uh, black bodies. Um, my last question before turning back to my colleague Amelia, Amelia is uh, the the foundation of medical schools. Um, so, particularly, how did uh, do you think the Civil War impact medical schools uh, as a whole, but also the relational dynamics between Northern medical schools, Southern medical schools, and um, how does uh, that link? Um, is connected to the eugenics movement. You think? So
2: that's a huge question. Um, but uh, I'll start with the, the first medical school in the U.S. is founded in 1765, at the University of Pennsylvania. All the initial medical schools up until the University of Maryland, which is still you know really a mid-Atlantic school, but is a, a, an an enduring slave state, we'll say, um, are mostly in the Northeast and the mid-Atlantic region. Um, And they train a cohort of physicians who will go and found the early medical schools in the South and in the South, the old Southwest, which is really like Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, not um, Arizona and California. Um, So what you have is a kind of ripple effect or a network surrounding Philadelphia, New York and Boston and these schools that are founded by students of, of them who traveled initially from, so take Josiah Nott that racial scientist who founds the Medical College of Alabama, is a professor at uh, the University of Louisiana, Tulane. He goes to Penn in the 1820s, um, comes back, starts writing practices, but he grew up in South Carolina. So they go to Philadelphia, they learn medicine, but many of these people from slave states obviously already had a racial theory and a set of racial ideas coming from being either planters' children themselves or living in or in proximity of slavery. Um, so these schools are also coming to formation parallel to a century of debates over the abolition of slavery. So slavery is probably, if not the most, um, over this whole century probably is the, the biggest single political issue over that century outside of maybe the American Revolution um, is what is slavery going to persist or should we abolish it? And that also um, is kind of a growing debate. The 18th century, it's not as, as significant, but by the middle of the 19th century, the country is in the midst of tearing itself apart over it. And this is also corresponds to not just the growth in number of schools, but the growth in students. So Penn, Columbia, Harvard, the first three medical schools, and a a few others that are founded in the 18th century, only a little more than 200 grad people graduate in the 18th century. Um, In the first two decades of the 19th century, 2,000 or so graduate. In the second or the third and fourth decades, 1820 to 1840 or so, um, 10,000 students graduate. And from 1840 to 1859, close to 30,000 students graduate. So at the peak of this, the country ripping itself apart over slavery, you also have the largest cohorts, really unimaginably large cohorts of physicians being trained and disseminating around the country. And so they come Philadelphia, the center of this story really, the medical schools there are half Southern, half Northern. Um, more than 50% of the students in the 1850s at Penn are Southern students. Um, And then, so the other kind of key questions are, how does Darwin shape this? But before I go there, I should say one more thing, is that the University of Pennsylvania wanted to market to Southern students. It wasn't an accident. They knew it. Harvard wished they could get Southern students. I found letters saying that they're trying to get more students from the South and the West Indies, because they're you know, what we might think of as tuition centric schools. They make their money by having students, not uh, not by just, um, not by simply, um, not, not in the way that it's taken. It's very much each student's fee, that's what pays the school. So the more students you have, the more money you make. Um, so kind of thinking then about this transition of the civil war, eugenics, and really the dark revolution. In history of medicine and science, Darwin is treated as a similar breaking point in history as is the US Civil War in American politics. Uh, Although I think we've been revising that a little bit on the Civil War uh, in in more recent decades, showing how much the kind of racial strife, despite some gains in that 12 year period of reconstruction really was not obviously solved. Um, And still not even the civil rights movement Completely solve these issues, even if it took care of a lot of the du jour, or, um, du jour uh, discrimination. Um, so, what happens with Darwin and what will make this racial science very easily connect to the science of eugenics is that really these students who were trained by the polygenist physicians of the 1850s will begin taking over the medical school at the same time. So you have generational faculty as as another way of thinking about. So Joseph Leidy, who's the professor of anatomy at Penn from 1853 or 54 to around 1888. He'll be one of the earliest American uh, converts to Darwinian evolution. Pretty much in 1860, he embraces uh, the theory of natural selection despite having been a polygenist. Uh, prior to that. Um, But his racial teachings on anatomy, on anatomical difference, don't change. And we can see that from lectures, is that what really changes is the causal explanation of racial science, not, um, not uh, not the actual way they're depicting people of African descent's bodies. So eugenics will very much follow in that vein, is that the kind of tools for explaining and defining the origins of racial difference might become more sophisticated or take on the language of genetics and eugenics but a lot of the morphological distinctions also medical stereotypes like yellow fever immunity um, while there's some complex truth to malaria immunity that has nothing to do with race um, that th- these these will survive and just have a n- different explanatory matrix for for uh, for for defining the differences and that's that's really one of those key differences that you can still see up until today is that some of these anatomical ideas that were pioneered in the first half of the 19th century and second half of the 18th century still crop up in medical theory um, in ways that are surprising and complicated
1: yeah so just to go off that point then um, can you tell us more about how the the curricula and the teaching in medical schools has been influenced or is still being influenced by this background and what it was built from?
2: Well, I think, I think one of the biggest single problems is that the way the med- medical profession and uh, has tends to deal with crises around race, be it the kind of uh, revelations of the Tuskegee syphilis experiments um, or... Uh, even how American academics reacted to Nazi eugenics experiments is that they tend to think that one incident is the main defining feature of the system rather than questioning why they use race as a biological category. So there are these persistent medical stereotypes, but most, I think, you know, they're, they're not, I hope, I'm not sure, but the, the majority of doctors don't believe that Black people have denser bones or thicker skull bones in particular. I Maybe that's too much credit, but I think where it really ends up being most pernicious is in the presumption that race has, that these kind of five narrow racial groups, uh, and obviously different scientists will put out different ones. In a recent JAMA article, all of a sudden, Latinos were, were a racial group, even though that's historically more of a language group, um, or people of Spanish speakers. Um, uh, but the, the presumption that there are a handful of genetic silos that, uh, correlate to skin color that you can then prescribe unique medicines, um, perceive, take away kind of unique. And then this is not necessarily medical, but in terms of standardized testing that you can then kind of in the case of the other part of racial science is not as medical, but the physicians, the anatomists would reify in their discussion of anatomy was lesser intelligence due to cranial capacity um, or supposed cranial capacity um, is the these kind of correlations of skin color to intelligence are still very appealing to the kind of um, right-wing proponents of standardized IQ testing um, particularly one thinks about Charles Murray's work, even though he, he also writes about how poor whites do poorly on IQ, but that's not racial, which is uh, obviously a contradiction in his work. But I think in the most disturbing and most actual fundamental aspect is that they still use race as a proxy for one's individual genetic history and a basic understanding of human migration human interaction tells us that if you're going to say that african americans who we know have often a lot of european heritage if you're going to say that because of their kind of racial inheritance one needs to screen them for sickle cell then why not also screen them for cystic fibrosis uh, like it's like these these lo- fundamental uh, contradictions of using race as a category when the history of humans Outside of isolated specific groups, is of uh, moving around, procreating with each other, and actually sharing their genes. So I think that's really the most fundamental problem that medicine needs to face is that they've bought into this 18th century system that you can easily sort people into simply quantifiable groups, primarily based in skin color. Obviously, with things like Tay-Sachs, they, that's not necessarily a skin color issue, but it's still a racial issue, but different um, because of building a race around somebody's religion. Um, but that, that I think is really this this most fundamental uh, problem it, that occurs in the medical school is the embrace of racial categories that's never been fully um, left behind. and. Yeah. And rather than the kind of a few bad apples narrative that tends to dominate in the wake of revelations like Tuskegee, like even I think there's been more uh, more press coverage of the Kligman skin tests in Philadelphia um, at the uh, penitentiary in Philadelphia or the move bombing children is that uh, this is much more sadly the normal operations dating back to the late 18th century that haven't ever been fully Interrogated of why, why do they do things this way? Why do they embrace these racial categories when they, you know, it's the, the logic is so fundamentally built in that it does not take an MD to explain why why not malaria resistance is not a racial characteristic. It's a characteristic of a lot of people in the Mediterranean world who evolved in, in certain moments with malaria.
3: So uh, what steps, uh, because of this history, uh, this is kind of connected to um, this inclusive uh, teaching of racial history within us curricula. We usually heard this through uh, critical race theory, right? And how that has been misconstrued through K through 12 education. Uh, But of course, as you know, racial history isn't limited to K through 12. It's at the undergraduate and also at the graduate level Uh, What steps uh, should medical schools and universities take to address the harms, the new curricula statements, affirmative action? I mean, this is also a big question, but what are some small, tangible things that uh, medical schools you suggest should start on including this history, um, not as a bashing or demeaning uh, model, but as a model of solidarity uh, and understanding and education uh, towards uh, communities of color?
2: Well, I think there are a lot of things they could do. First off, I think bringing a a historicist framework into bioethics training more directly will show the seemingly cyclical and repetitive nature of how race race reinvents itself or is constantly reinvented by a new generation with slightly different features as a category for implementation in medicine. So I think first and foremost, thinking about, bioethics questions as having a history, a very clear history that can be traced. And then from there, I think, I think a lot of physicians would be troubled if they realized that the categories they were using were invented by 18th century Europeans whose medicine in no other way do they embrace, uh, or in very few other ways do they embrace. Um, and then I think the work that race does in society is it explains social determinants of health through biology. Um, and so I think a greater emphasis on social determinants of health would be critical. So one, one example of that, that uh, I, I just as a, a, in terms of being medical training, I'm a lay person, um, is asthma. We know, or there are studies that show that asthma uh, high rates of asthma correlate to poor people, poor neighborhoods built around interstates um, or, or what new freeways that were put in in the mid 20th century led to rises in asthma in poor neighborhoods because they built interstates not through rich neighborhoods unsurprisingly. And those tended to be disproportionately of color. Um, and so what race does in this feature when you start looking for specific genetic traits is that that might be causing uh, asthma disparities. You say, it's not something that's fixable in our infrastructure, in our economic distribution, in the way we distribute healthcare, but it's something in that person's body. We need to find a cure for their bodily, uh, uh, bodily malfunctions, um, rather than we need to either find a way of preventing Interstates from polluting people, uh, I don't know, I'm not a civil engineer, so I'm not even going to try and comment on that, but find ways of cleaning up people's immediate environments, giving people access to better healthcare, better nutrition. These are the things that seem to most fundamentally shape group healthcare outcomes. Obviously, they're individual genetic histories, but when we start looking at kind of broad patterns, it seems much more likely in most cases and is much better explained uh, by looking at social determinants of health. So that would be the kind of two, two critical uh, issues that I would really focus on. And then I think that there are other things that have to do with maybe more international questions, but I, I think looking at the social determinants of health rather than racial determinants of health, which are generally speaking fictitious um, would go a long way in diagnosing what is actually causing racial disparities and other kind of social disparities in disease.
1: So what about, what do you think should be done with anatomical remains that medical schools have used in the past and those collections? How do you think that issue should be handled now?
2: Well, that's a really complex question. I think first and foremost, schools need to actually begin cataloging what they have start figuring out what's in some of these archives because some places like Transylvania University has it's now a small liberal arts college but was one of the leading medical schools in the 19th century uh, before it closed with the Civil War but they still have tons of anatomical specimens Um, but they don't have any resources to really catalog them the the person who is curating it is in their physics department. He's really fantastic, does a great job. I don't want to, um, but it's not his specialty. He can't respond to NAGPRO requests. He, he does not have that training that a real museum uh, um, scholar would have. So first and foremost, in some cases, it's just actually figuring out what they had. My alma mater for my PhD, Tulane, found a mummy that came from Egypt that I'm pretty sure I know where it, how it got, got there under the bleachers of their uh, old football stadium um, some decades ago. So that I think first and foremost is a lot of these places have huge collections that are really disorganized if they haven't been used for some time. So just figuring out what they have and making a public statement and reckoning about that is the first step. Um, Then I think in most cases, these things need to go back or be reburied to constituent communities and I think it's worth remembering that this is an issue that affects all people. Um, In the 19th century, uh, poor whites knew their bodies were being stolen, just like enslaved black people did. And they rioted over it. There's a case in one of my sources in London, where a, a man was dying on the street, choking of bread, and the body snatchers brought his body immediately in before anybody, you know, any kind of sort of, mortician would have seen it. So this is something that affects everybody's ancestry. Um, And most of these people, we can pretty safely say, before the 19th century had no interest in donating their body to to a medical school, much less science. Um, And so I think beginning to have conversations about repatriation, and these are also ways, I think first steps at thinking about medical schools, broader, imbrication in histories of slavery, in histories of colonialism, in histories of imperialism. And then you can start actually maybe building a much more inclusive medical school and medical training because you'll start building those links through saying sorry, through apologizing, through returning remains. So I think, and then that would then of course bring up a lot more questions about reparations, about, um, and this is really the institutional level story. I think there are also, you know, the U.S. government needs to intervene more. There is a law for Native American remains, the, the Native Americans Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. There is no law for any any other set of remains. Um, it's good that they're there for Native Americans, but the federal government needs to expand this to, to its logical conclusion so that none of the, nobody consented, virtually nobody consented to give their bodies to these medical schools. And um, so I think that, and then you, then you hopefully can actually start asking more questions about economic redistribution and and more deep, deep, uh, not deeper questions, but uh, the kind of next set of questions because you have brought constituent communities to the table also, um, and have hopefully built dialogue with, with them rather than just an internal study.
1: Yeah, those are great suggestions. Now that your book is on its way, um, what other things are you working on?
2: Well, that's actually, your previous question is a great segue. Um, so there's one chapter in, in the, the book that I, is coming out in November that really focuses on people, well, first, the networks uh, of trade that allowed skulls to be shipped to Boston. In this case, the focus case in that chapter is Harvard, but it's not just Harvard's medical school that was guilty of this, but that shipped bodies around the world to medical schools. And so in that book, I want to write a history of a different person, each chapter, a different person from a different part of the world, whose body ends up in a medical school and thinking, taking what was in the first book, a domestic story of racial science, mostly focusing on medical professors and students and telling that story from the kind of mirror image of the people who are racialized, who are exploited. Um, And then I'm also working on with, uh, I think, one of the producers and creators of the podcast who's not on mic, but Elizabeth Chung. We're working on an article aimed at medical professionals, kind of trying to implore them to take some of these historical and contemporary lessons of why race is not a good uh, proximate for other types of medical knowledge and to abandon medical medical theory. And um, then I'm working on a few smaller academic history articles related to imperialism, race and medicine, and one that's about connections between metropolitan medical schools and uh, like like the University of Pennsylvania and Transylvania University and how tracing links that show in a more on-the-ground level how racial science went from the big cities into the small towns and in local communities through local and regional medical schools.
0: Thank you for listening to another great conversation on Bioethics in the Margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.